We have the return of Maggie's theme opening up the episode today, Charles. Yeah, and it's fitting because it's open. It's the best theme, and it's opening up <laughs> for the season two finale. Yeah, closing us out um, with yeah. Would you say this is perhaps one of the? Um, I mean, apart from maybe the theme music, this is my favorite by far my favorite uh, piece of original score in the Northern Exposure universe. I'm a big fan of it, though. I'm also a big fan of the theme that plays between Ed and Lightfeather, but I don't know if that theme's Whoa. ever going to return back. Uh, yeah, we sh- I guess we should have commented on that last episode. What, do you I know, I totally recall anything mind. about that uh, that music? Um, Very fitting for uh, a romantic comedy film, is exactly yeah. what I thought. <laughs> it just gave you the right uh, rom-com vibes. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed it. It's just that I don't know if that theme's ever going to return back, but if it does, I will put that in the running against Maggie's theme because I really enjoyed it. Just really quickly touching on Lightfeather. I know uh, this is the wrong episode, but there, according to Moose Chick, there are some listings for songs um, for that episode. We mentioned in the last episode um, that uncharacteristically, this episode did not have all of the um, music from the original airing listed on moosechick.com. But there are a few listings. And there is one when Ed meets Lightfeather, uh, I guess for the first time, it's a it's a piece of score by John Williams. Is that maybe what you're referring to, or or is there another? No, thing? though I did like that too. Okay, but uh, no, but, it's it's like a theme that plays whenever I think they're in the barn and also later. Okay, so it's just kind of a recurring. Hey, maybe we'll get it back. Um, keep in, keep your ear open for that, Charles, because um, yeah, it went over my head, I guess, but I'm sure you would recognize it. Hopefully, if if you hear it again. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we're gonna get to the wait. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Yeah. What are we talking about here? Talking about Northern Exposure. It's a 1990s series from CBS. And uh, yeah, it was pretty popular back in the day. Uh, critically reviewed as a, as a great show. I, I think it also audiences loved it. Had some good ratings. But today we don't really talk about it so much. It's um, about 30 years old. It's kind of fallen out of the limelight. Yeah. But here we are today. Uh, my name's Lee. Always joined by Charles, who has never seen the show, or this is his first time watching every episode that you listen to. Yeah, this is my first time seeing the show. Um, just watched it this morning, actually. Oh, this wow. Episode. Okay, so this is fresh on the dome. Um, I've seen this a number of times. This is, you know, third, fourth, fifth rewatch of uh, this season. Maybe more. I've watched the first two seasons a lot. Um, but what are we? We are Northern Overexposure Podcast. At gmail.com, by the way, if anyone would like to write in, we've got a Gmail. We're accepting uh, comments and uh, corrections. <laughs> Reviews. Yeah. Uh, if you want to flame us, that's also fine. <laughs> yeah. We haven't got any hate mail yet. I don't. We shouldn't invite hate mail. Stop. Oh, yeah, Stop writing the hate, hate mail. mail. <laughs> yeah, we are the podcast that overanalyzes every episode of Northern Exposure. And we also introduce it to a newcomer every single episode. So this newcomer will always just be dropped off in the middle of every episode. They have no context and we just want to get some fresh perspectives on it. Yeah, never seen an episode before. This would be their first time watching it. We like to get sort of the um, out of context opinion. Though I think uh, we have a special guest for this uh, very special season finale. But uh, we'll save that for the end. Back to the beginning of this episode. Maggie's theme plays as her plane is flying through the sky. And uh, what is it? She's with Rick. Rick is actually uh, piloting. And she's administering a flying test, right? Yeah. Well, 
first of all, welcome back, Rick. It's been a Rick while. Rick is back. Yeah, he's the you know last seen uh, as a brief um, crossing the frame in episode eight or something. Now was he in season two at all? I think at the first episode. Yeah, maybe he's definitely referenced a lot, but I gotta say I don't think he like has hardly anything to do this entire uh, season. But he's back. We're glad he's back. Yeah, uh, though, spoiler alert, it's not for very long. <laughs> Rick dies, as um, you might guess. Maggie has sort of a history of, um, of having her, her boyfriends die. Um, this would be number five, Rick being the fifth boyfriend. Yeah, let's, uh, let, let's back up a, yeah, a yeah, bit. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's explain how he dies. Let's get to the flying test. That's where we're at now. Yeah, so it turns out that he needs to be re-upped on his recertification, and Maggie is going to be his, I guess, to judge uh, their test. Administer. Uh, administered, yeah. yeah. And I guess because, you know, it makes sense. There's not a lot of population, so maybe she's the best fitted to um, give the exam, despite her <laughs> and Rick being closely emotionally involved um you would expect some bias <laughs> yeah i was surprised she could be the administrator like she has a, a relationship with this person like she knows them um i'm surprised that the flight board people would allow this to happen but i think you're right because there's you know it's rural alaska there isn't a lot of people there she's probably the only one that can also administrate it so yeah i guess it just falls onto her but you know as we see she does not she does not take the responsibility lightly she in fact she fails rick because in this first scene, we sort of learn through context, um, Maggie, as, as the scene's about to end, Maggie comments, uh, asks, what are, you, what are you doing? And Rick tries to play it off. Um, he's like, oh, yeah, the, um, the signal light. Yes, it's, it's red, of course. We can infer and we learn very shortly after this that Rick is colorblind, which, of course, if you've ever seen Little Miss Sunshine or you just know anything about piloting, you probably don't want your pilot to be colorblind. It's not allowed. Yeah, you want him to, I think Joel said it, you want him to see all spectrums of the color? Yeah. Um, that is an interesting, to, yeah, uh, Joel brings up, like, how, how, how are you a pilot if you're colorblind? How, did the, how has this gone on so long? And it turns out that, um, what is it, Rick references the Ishihara, what is it? But I don't get, how long have you been a pilot? Eight years. Well, didn't you need a, a physical to get your license? Yeah. How'd you pass it? You know the Ishihara test for colorblindness? It's a book. Yeah. I memorized it. Really? Wait, your, your memory's good? Well, that's dedication to the craft at that point. Yeah, he's got, he's got a good memory, Joel says. We can at least, we can deduce that. I like whenever it's revealed that he's colorblind, uh, when Maggie confronts him. She's wearing red and green, and he's also wearing red and green. Wow, and the vehicles are I didn't all even notice too. that. So how does that work? It's a it's a really interesting. Um, yeah, I do remember that. He's like chasing her outside of the brick. Mm -hmm. Really cool. Um, sort of very long dolly move as Rick chases Maggie. Telephoto lens and super fast moving. But yeah, I didn't notice that. I guess the the red and green colors are. Are they throughout the entire episode or just particular in? Just very particular in that scene. In fact, I I believe that uh, it's shot from the viewpoint of inside the truck. Yeah, we kind of look... The truck itself is red, and the building is green as well. Like, lots of red-green imagery. Wow. You're right. The lens kind of shoots through the open windows of the truck, and it's it's shooting through a lot of foreground elements, and we're kind of zoomed in, like, telephoto on our subjects, Maggie and Rick. I like when they do that, actually. Is there a, a cinematic reason to do that? Like, does that symbolize anything? Um, in this particular case, are you referring to just having, um, having, having foreground elements passing in front of the lens? 
Yeah. Um, I can't really say anything as far as thematic reasoning, but um, having these foreground elements gives you definitely a sense of uh, movement. And the, the dolly move that's going on here is very fast. So it gives a lot of energy to this scene, which would otherwise be um, two people sitting across from from each other at a table, like arguing or something. Mm. They're, they're moving and he's chasing her, you know, she's trying to get okay. away from him. And he's like really angry. Um, what Joel calls it an act of betrayal <laughs> because she has flunked him. <laughs> but to her credit, she, you know, if Maggie would not have flunked Rick, he would very likely be dead. You know, it's dangerous to fly. Uh, yeah. Also, someone else would have flunked them as well. Um, well, I mean, he would have passed this season and then it would have been, what, uh, six months or 12 months before he would have to take another test. And it's likely, especially with her track record, I guess, that he would die. Well, I'm, I mean, like, if it wasn't Maggie being the one that administering the test, like it was another person, wouldn't he have still made the same mistake and not noticed that the light was red at that moment and therefore failed the test? You're right. He would have failed it either way, but because he failed it by Maggie's hand, it was an act of betrayal in that case. Well, I, I want to talk about the sermon that Chris gives. Yeah, let's back up a little bit to, yeah. to sort of the beginning. I, I only want to talk about one thing in that sermon, really. Okay. So he gives a whole spiel about Chicken Little and the sky falling down and the townsfolks are all interacting with their own lives. Like, uh, I think Shelly's putting up the board for the breakfast menu. Joel's playing with some dogs on the street. Can I quickly uh, just give a little, uh, that is a, a, another great visual sort of uh sort of way to show the scene. Uh, shout out to David Carson, who is the director of this episode. He's doing a lot of these um, long camera movements. Uh, in this scene, he does a very long pan, camera pan, uh, starting off with Shelly, as you said, putting up a sign. We see um, a bunch of people crossing Main Street, lots of movement, lots of business, cars driving around, people street cleaning, someone's pushing a wheelbarrow. Joel is getting attacked by huskies, it seems, like dogs <laughs> are jumping on him. That's another motif that's that's happening. Joel is I'm like, telling you. dogs are jumping all over Joel. Yeah, there's just so many dogs on the street. Every episode, almost every episode has dogs on the street. I feel like um, it's a good way to kind of play up Joel's victimhood, which is a big part of his character. Because these dogs are just like, it's funny to see Joel sort of get pounced on by dogs. Yeah, in the middle of the street. <laughs> like it just is like animals just coming up to him. But the thing I wanted to talk about was uh, whenever he's done with his broadcast. Yeah. He throws something at the toy dinosaur that's on his desk. Oh, what did he? Yeah, what does he do? He uh, there's like a toy dinosaur. I think it's a T Rex, and he was talking about Triceratops in particular. Mm -hmm. And then he kind of pauses and then looks at the dinosaur really menacingly, and he just throws something at it. And then the scene ends. Is that because he's talking about like the meteor that kills the dinosaurs? Yeah, but why is he so mad at the? <laughs> particular dinosaur like he had I, rage in his eyes it's one of the oddest scenes i've seen in this television series i had to rewatch that scene four or five times to try to understand the context and i, I still don't have any i'll go back and watch that it, maybe it, it kind of reminds me of uh there was a really interesting edit point in um spring break when uh chris and ed share sort of a wink and it's a very quick edit point it just mm -hmm. seems abnormal as far as editing goes and like the way to button a scene, but it's a good, it's a good scene button. Yeah. I like that. It is odd. I would rather have an odd scene button than like a standard typical, like blackout and then fade to the next scene in the break. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, that's where we're going to wait pick let's, up on. Let's not leave yet. Oh wait, we're standing on this. Well, yeah. Cause so we were talking about how um, the sky is falling. There's a satellite that's going to crash mm -hmm. into, into, um, <laughs> Spoiler alert, it's going to crash into Sicily. But uh, no, yeah, we got this impending fear of um, 
of a satellite falling out of space and maybe doing some damage. This is also, interestingly enough, sort of like a similar plot to this Vim Vendors film that came out later this year, this very same year, uh, called Until the End of the World. So I wonder if that was just sort of like on the collective subconscious, just like the fear of satellites. Uh, I couldn't tell if there is any sort of new story, like were satellites falling in the 90s uh, or in the late 80s? I don't know. Well, I got to say that no one has ever been killed by a satellite. Yeah, I imagine the chances would be pretty um, pretty small, but... No, it's uh, it's one in a million. Uh, according to this article that I read on NBC News, uh, the reason is because 70% of the Earth is water and 99% of the land on Earth is not occupied by a person at a particular given time. It's astronomically uh, small to be hit <laughs> by a... Satellite and a lot of it gets disintegrated when it re enters right. the atmosphere. So, okay. yeah, no, um, Rick certainly would have been the first one to <laughs> ever have been killed by a satellite. It, it's actually hit one person, I think. Whoa. Uh, and that person hasn't even been hurt. Like, okay. it, I think the it's article like said, like, piece. she got hit in the shoulder and she was like not wounded at all. That's strange because <laughs> they come in really fast, you know? Maybe it's a small, I don't know. Maybe it hit enough friction that it slowed down. Yeah. Who knows? Um, I'm not a physicist, but. Uh, do, were you watching with uh, subtitles this episode? No, I, I was not. Well, I, um, it's interesting because uh, in this sermon, Chris, I believe Chris says, uh, the National Space Administration informs us that Uncle Sam's Ursus 4 satellite is like falling out of orbit or something. But in the um, subtitles, the satellite is referred to as the Comcast 4 satellite, which is completely not what Chris says. It doesn't uh -huh. even sound like Ursus 4. I, I don't know why there's such a mistake there. Uh, maybe, I don't know. I, I did look up Ursus 4. The only thing I could find was um, something to do with Planet of the Apes, maybe like a Planet of the Apes comic or something. Hmm. But yeah. I wonder why they changed it to Comcast. No, I mean, if we have to uh, spend some time on this, I guess um, there are two options in my head. Maybe the uh, transcriber um, heard the word Comcast while he or she was transcribing and accidentally put that word in instead of Ursus. Um, or maybe Ursus 4 is a property that they have uh, not secured the rights for. So in some last ditch effort to, to try to hide the fact that they have um, infringed on copyright, um, they changed the, they changed the subtitle <laughs> Just a sub to something else. <laughs> <laughs> only deaf people would be fooled. I know. We would only have fooled the population of people that uh, are hard of hearing. Yeah. Okay. Sorry to hold us up there. What are we moving on to? The brick? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, we see that Rick is in the brick being despondent over being, you know, disbarred, basically. <laughs> and I like that Shelly's trying to comfort him. I, I like that interaction because I don't think we've ever seen Shelly and Rick interact. Yeah. How does she do it? What does she say? Uh, she tells him that she's, she suggests that the people of Sicily can all write a letter. Oh, yeah. Just like they did for uh, Cagney and Lacey. To get the show back on the air? Yeah. Are you familiar <laughs> with that TV show? I'm not. Are you? Uh, I was until today, but I, <laughs> I read up all about it and I thought it was really interesting. So really, yeah, Cagney and Lacey was a 1980s television show on CBS and it was about two female cops uh, that in, in pretty much a dramatic setting. Like it, was, it wasn't a comedy. And just like how Mary Tyler Moore kind of paved the way for comedy for women, Cagney and Lacey kind of did it the same way for drama. The show got canceled three times, wow. but managed to come back every time, except, you know, for the last time. But it was kind of an influential show 
in the 1980s and can definitely we can see the roots of it all the way up till 2019 and more ways of just the uh, controversy of having two female leads we mm-hmm. can see how like shows got canceled back then and how they're brought back because it's a lot of people will say now they're like, "Oh, television shows or movies are being canceled by outrage or some sort of uh, thing of the people that is controlling them." But we can kind of see that it's uh, the opposite kind of happened back then because the rumor has it that the reason it was canceled the first time was because two female leads were seen as "quote unquote" uh, lesbian. Like uh, I, think, oh. I think he called them. I'm not going to say the word but a pejorative word against mm-hmm. them. So that actually enraged a lot of people that caused them to... Who called? Who said that? Uh, one of the, like the CBS television executives. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, about the show. And then the second time it was canceled, a lot of people wrote in, just like what okay. Shelly is, yeah. is calling it now. They wrote in, and apparently it was a big enough success to bring it back. A lot of the people that wrote in were uh, middle-aged women from uh, mm. the the people were able to tell. The, I'm sorry, the creator was able to tell. He, he wrote about it in his memoirs. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, about the television show. I thought uh, the, all of that was really interesting. Yeah. Right. But long story short of what I'm trying to say is that Shelly is just trying to, you know, create a movement to bring back Rick. Were you saying um, shows were can- like, for instance, that was that show was canceled for controversy, perhaps the first time um, shows today. Are they still canceled for controversy or for other reasons or just profitability or? Yeah, I, I guess a mixture of all three. Mm-hmm. Cagney and Lacey was canceled because it had low ratings, but it okay. started to so try to sustain well. itself. Yeah. Uh, that was the first time that it got canceled. Mm-hmm. I would say that most television shows are, I mean, really it, it, it is a business. And if you're not bringing in money for advertisers, you'll just be canceled. Uh, I would say that's actually the major number one thing. Now what causes that can be a myriad of things, including social issues. But I think at the end of the day, that's the most important one for it. Yeah. I've already lost a thread. I don't let's pick it up from uh let's go into something new. Maurice is trying to sell sort of an old fixer upper to two men who want to open a bed and breakfast in Sicily. Yeah, it turns out Maurice is a real estate agent. Yeah, well, he's got a lot of land, so um, he owns he owns a lot of stuff in in Sicily. So he's trying to get rid of this kind of kind of looks like a dump, but I guess it has a lot. Wait, of, what? I mean, a lot of things. It's not even. There's like some of the. They don't even have walls, you know, on the inside. Uh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I, I mean, right. on the, the outside, exterior, it doesn't look like a dump. Yeah, yeah. the exterior is really nice. It's a lovely it has a yellow. Lot of promise. Yeah. yeah, you're you're right. It does have a lot of promise. He says something about Ivan Lubov. Maurice is trying to sell uh, these two men, Ron and Eric. Uh, he says, yeah, this house used to belong to uh, Ivan Lubov, who made his fortune selling beaver hats or something. <laughs> uh, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't take Maurice too long to figure out. Uh, after a while, actually, it, it takes it does take Maurice a while, but uh, he he does come to learn that Ron and Eric are homosexual men, and again, Maurice is hung up with I guess sort of as he says like the gay lifestyle. What is it? Chris is even like you're still hung up on that. Like, what's the problem? Because he he, yeah. he asks Chris like, what should I do? You know, I don't want to now that I've learned that these uh, men are homosexual. I don't want to sell to them because, of course, he's like a bigot. Yeah. uh, He also, the reasoning he gives behind it is that he doesn't care what people do in the privacy of their own bedroom, even though he admits that what they are doing is disgusting in his, his words. Um, yeah. <laughs> he He's saying that, but he, uh, the main reason is that if he sells the house to them, then they will bring other people of like-minded tendencies. So pretty soon it will turn into, I believe he calls it San Francisco. 
Yeah, he says like San Francisco, Fire Island. Um, his whole shtick is, um, like you said, doesn't care what people do in the privacy of their own homes, but he doesn't want it happening in his own backyard, which is a sort of weird double standard. Um, but Chris somehow is able to assuage these, assuage, how do you say that? These um, worried feelings in Maurice by telling him the story of um, the soldiers, the Janissaries, who were the most ferocious, fearless, sort of like military of ancient times. Uh, but according to Chris, it turned out a lot of uh, the warriors were gay. Yeah, I think that it's actually kind of eloquent in a way. This was the best way that Chris could have got through to Maurice. And it's also the best way that a 1991 television show could have got through to its audience you think uh, so? without yeah. going too heavy into it. Because I think in 2019, the right call would have been to say, well, for Chris to say, like, uh, you're just going to have to accept that your ways are outdated and wrong. Like people can love who they want to love, you know? Yeah, that's exactly. But the that's, argument today, I guess. But that's today. That's 2019. We're almost 30 years into the future on this thing. And back then, the best way to find a compromise was to say, like, whoa, I'm going to lead you to the water. Yeah. I can't make you drink it, but let me let me show you what things were like also back then. I guess he like uses uh, Maurice's military background, I guess. Yeah, to try to find a compromise on an issue that should not be compromised. And it seems to work. You want to backtrack a little bit? Uh, oh, yeah, 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 definitely. With this plot line, of course, um, you know, before... We can, talk, we can talk about why it's wrong <laughs> later. Like, <laughs> before yeah. Maurice uh, learns that Ron and Eric are a gay couple. Um, he seems to be very friendly with them. Like they're really getting along They're um, They're going to be buyers for this, um, this fixer upper that Maurice is trying to get off of his hands. He, he would rather the money than the house. Um, yeah, but they have the same interest yeah. like in gourmet cooking and also in musicals, musicals, antique furniture. Oh yeah. That too. Which I guess maybe in the nineties is like, that is just trademark gay, I guess. But I don't know if that's necessarily like, sure. I could see that as a stereotype. But. Yeah. Well, that, there, there's a great uh, opening in the, I think the 2012 or 2011 Tonys. I can't remember which one, but okay. uh, it was hosted by Neil Patrick Harris. And he, his opening song was, uh, I think like musicals aren't for gay men anymore. Okay. Yeah. And I was just singing about that. Yeah. Uh, how they were changing times. But I, I guess back in 1991, those are like stereotypically seen as, uh, uh, activities for people that were gay. I love how balsamic vinegar is stressed in that scene. Yeah, like that is extra gay for some <laughs> Yeah, I don't understand that at, at all, but... <laughs> like, why is that important? <laughs> I don't... Maybe it was to show that he had a refined palate yeah. or something. But balsamic vinegar different... seems to be pretty common today in uh, recipes, you know? Yeah, it's not like <laughs> you wouldn't bat an eye at it if you read it in a menu, but uh, it was 1991. It was different. It was... Yeah, I, I I do like that the show did press that into the audience, saying like, "Well, the character Maurice also has all the same interest." Like, yeah, you're the show knew what was right and wrong. Yeah, like mm -hmm. they could make that point to be like, even yeah. though Maurice is like wrong, and he gets to state his like opinion a lot. The show knows that 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 those values. Yeah. Exactly. So I like that they had shown that. By the way, Ron and Eric, new characters. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I am wondering if they're going to show up in the future or if this, they're going to be like one and done characters. Mm -hmm. Well, we can hope. We can only hope because they've purchased this. Uh, in the end, they do. Uh, well, we can 
we'll get there in a second. Uh, but yeah, they, they do purchase the, um, the house. Maurice does sell it to them. Yeah. At the full value. But, uh, so we can hope that they'll stick around with this Airbnb. No, not an Airbnb. <laughs> this is the nineties. This is their bed and breakfast. <laughs> Sorry. I even <laughs> got it confused in my notes. I just were like, oh yeah, they're, what are they doing? They're opening an Airbnb or something. I just like wrote that down. <laughs> No, but how do you like them? What do you think about them? Uh, I like them that there is one confusing line that I don't really understand. Maybe it's just sailing past over my head. But whenever Maurice does come out and uh, pretty much admits that the reason he won't sell the house to them is because of their sexual orientation. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, one of the characters, honestly, I do not know which one is, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is which, but uh, I will presume that this one is Eric. He says that... Spare us the theatrics, Maurice. Look, I'm serious here. I'm not joking. Hey, I'm not above using the no fairies allowed routine myself, you know. How much do you want? Well, that's not it. We agreed on 46.5. How about 48? I'm talking morality here, not money. What do you think, Eric? Oh, I don't know. All right, if you think so. What? We'll go the asking price. 55. 55? And not a penny more, Maurice. Oh, so yeah, it, it actually is Ron who says they're they're not above using the no fairies allowed routine. Uh, I guess to get a better price, like maybe they they don't want to sell to someone, um, so they want to hold out for um, a bigger buyer. So they're very you know they're very cutthroat businessmen as well. Um, and it's funny because they <laughs> they kind of play it off because you know from their perspective, they're really close friends with Maurice. They've been getting along. They share interests. They've been hanging out. So they get it. Uh, they can, to them, they, they misinterpret it as uh, Maurice um, not wanting to sell to them because they're going to pay not the full asking price, which they uh, end up <laughs> forcing Maurice to accept. You know, it's like, no, yeah, we'll, we'll do the full asking price. Yeah, I think that scene just confused me because I thought for a second the way I interpreted it was that like was he were they uh, self hating? Like, no, no, no. I, I, I that's that's a little confusing. Yeah, because they kind of rush through it. But I think it was just um, saying that they've used that excuse not to sell to someone, which is um, which is you know unfortunate because uh, in the '90s, I guess it wasn't as uh, forgiving of a landscape uh, for homosexual men to you know be out. So if someone is buying from them and is homosexual, if they are going to like, you know, try to cheat them out of a good deal just to like put up this ruse so that someone else will pay higher. It's unfortunate, mm. but I guess they're kind of cutthroat and similarly to, um, to Maurice, but they're very agreeable. I think, you know, <laughs> I like Ron and Eric. Yeah. So far from what I've seen on them, uh, I think that they can be good characters though. From what we've seen so far, they're we basically, haven't really gotten any like, characteristics yeah. or personalities from they're them. We just know that just they want to live here. This plot key, you know, they're just, yeah. they're, they're not, they're not too defined apart from being a uh, gay man and uh, sort of being not uh, necessarily outwardly um, stereotypical. So sort of, sort of flew under the radar a little bit for Maurice, but um, so yeah, hopefully um, if they stick around Sicily with that uh, bed and breakfast, we'll, we'll, we'll figure out more about what really makes them tick. Nice. Yeah. Hopefully they stay around. Yeah. Let's, uh, do you want to get back into the plot line of Rick? Yeah, let's get to Rick. Um, I mentioned in the last episode uh, that the the vodka that Nikolai brings in the last episode, I think makes a reappearance here. I, I could be wrong, but Rick is drinking vodka in this episode oh, when he's, when he's kind of like uh, down and out. Mm-hmm. I I like the scene where he is camping, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and there's like an owl watching him. Yeah, you know that owls are seen as harbingers of death. Oh, really? Yeah, in some cultures. 
Yeah. Okay. I can, well, there you go. Cause this is moments before, um, he dies. Um, I kind of viewed it a little bit as a, uh, as a Twin Peaks reference, perhaps like a very, very broad one, perhaps, um, at some point in Twin Peaks, um, it's referenced that the owls are watching. Um, and that's what's happening here. Again, I don't know how far into Twin Peaks we are in this point, whenever this episode came out, it just kind of reminded me since, since they're both sort of uh, running at the same time, but oh, yeah, describe okay. this scene to us. Uh, how does this play out? Yeah. So he's basically just out there in the wilderness uh, being by himself because um, he just doesn't trust Maggie after what he feels is a betrayal. Yeah. He's not going to go back and sleep in the same bed as Maggie. You know, he's kind of on his own. Yeah. Drunk just too, hears, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's drunk. <laughs> and then I think he just hears a noise and then I, I believe it cuts to the owl. Yeah. And then the, the scene ends right then and there. Yeah. I think it's could be misremembering, but I think uh, we get the sound and then it cuts to the owl and then the owl's eye line kind of shifts as if like it's watching, you know, a meteor uh, yeah. come and hit Rick, which is what happens that the satellite that's falling from space, the uh, Ursus 4 or, or Comcast 4, whatever, <laughs> however you will, um, <clears throat> collides with Rick and he's dead. Yeah. I thought it was pretty morbid the way that Maurice, Joel, and Ed are looking at his corpse. We never see the corpse, but yeah, they're standing above what should be Rick's corpse. Yeah, and apparently, from what we can tell from their description, is that the satellite impaled him pretty good. It's pretty black comedy, you're right. Like, it's pretty... It's played for laughs, but it's pretty morbid, as you said. Yeah, exactly. Like, they (laughs) knew him. Like, they knew Rick, and, like, there's probably, presumably, like you know, prongs of the satellite just going through his body. like just And per, it's almost perhaps darker because we have to imagine it. We don't, they're describing what they're seeing, but but we don't see it ourselves. Yeah, I thought that was really morbid, to be honest. I love what Joel says. So, Joel, how do you plan on getting them apart? Get them apart? Why ask me? You think they teach this in medical school? You don't need a doctor. You need a, a blacksmith, a metallurgist. Yeah, it's kind of hard to tell where... Rick stops and the satellite begins. <laughs> like, yeah, the, the the satellite has fused with Rick's body. So, Well, yeah, that's interesting you bring that up because I think Chris's next sermon is talking about that. And usually I'm on board with what Chris about says. About man and machine or something? Yeah, I can usually understand what he's talking about. But on this one, I got to say, what is he talking about? <laughs> like, What's Rick, going on here? Yeah, he's like, oh, this is like the next evolutionary phase for man. Like Rick's ascended beyond us. Like Rick just died by <laughs> having a, a horrible essentially, freak death. Yeah, like a metal stick impelled through him. Like that's, how is that evolution in any way? Like I don't, I, I have no idea what Chris is talking about. Do you... Do you have any insight on what he's uh, going on about? No, this is a, a pretty um, off the wall tangent that Chris has gone to. The best I can glean from it is sort of his fascination with uh, maybe androids or cyborgs, but that is certainly not what Rick is right now. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing I don't understand. The like, two how is he? They may be fused together, but they're not like working in tandem, the machine and the and the yeah. <laughs> organic body. Yeah, I would say one is dominating the other at this <laughs> <Yeah>. point. <laughs> um. Since we're on the topic of morbid death, um, this is not the only plot line that kind of veers into sort of a very dark territory. Um, We haven't really established it, but we can get into this uh, a little bit later, but I just want to touch on it real fast. Hauling is visited by an old friend and uh, they recount a lot of old memories. But when the topic of Rick comes up, uh, she tells 
Hauling. Do you remember what happened to, it reminds me what happened to Abe Kellogg when he was working down at the, uh, the cannery or something like, uh, the machinery at this, uh, canning factory. He, he got caught in this machinery. Reminds me of Abe Kellogg when he got caught in the machinery at the cannery. They had to recall a, a hundred cases of salmon. I'll never forget that funeral. Watching them lower all those little bitty cans into the ground. <laughs> But yeah, that's pretty freaky to think about that your body is separated into uh, hundreds of tuna cans, essentially. Yeah, I know. That just reminded me of, uh, I remember reading about this uh, a few weeks ago about unusual deaths. Have you heard of grain entrapment? Uh, Why does this sound familiar? It's the one where like, you know those grain silos? They're like Uh those huge metal... I guess like buildings, no structures. Yeah, uh-huh. It's possible to actually fall into oh, them and no. then get drowned by the grains, essentially. Yeah. It, it reached an all time high in like 2016, like Why? recently. Yeah. People have just fallen into it. Like it's the, the death rate. It was, uh, I believe 26. Like 26 Wait, why is it more that. now? It, it just never declined in the first place. Like workplace accidents have declined, but not on this particular uh, death. Strange. And that just reminded me of that a lot. Like just uh, really strange and uh, unfortunate ways to go. Um, and that's one of them. And uh, along with the canning that. Yeah. Uh, hauling and what is her name? Is it Annette? Anita. 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 That uh, they are talking about. Do you want to hop into them? Yeah. Fast? Let's hop into them. Yeah. So we see that hauling is visited by presumably an old flame, even though it's not explicitly said that they were I think, involved. Yeah, I think Shelly uh, states like old girlfriend or old girlfriends, but um, yeah, it's not it's not uh, explicitly stated. However, yeah, we get the we get the vibe that they're old friends and probably um, old old girlfriend. You know, you know whether or not they were together, they've known each other for forty years or something. So yeah, I like that she pretty much calls them out. What is she Not say? intentionally, but she says like, "Oh wow, your daughter looks just like you." Oh wow, yeah. Well, she confuses Shelly uh, with being Holling's daughter, but Holling has to correct her, and she sort of laughs it off, like, "Oh, you old dog." But it's weird, I guess. Like you know, once again. <laughs> well, it culminates in the worst, the weirdest. The worst. Oh my lord. Do you even want to do the soundbite for that? No, we can just say what, what they say. I think yeah, I think it sounds worse if we put it as a soundbite. We couldn't. <laughs> probably yeah. it sounds worse. No, I, I mean, obviously, I think there's like some copyrighted music or something underneath it. But yeah, let's just go with that. We can, we, we'll backtrack a little bit since we're talking about it now. Um, the culmination, um, Shelly gets very jealous of Anita. Mm-hmm. You know, you, I guess you always like sort of comparing yourself to... Um, past lovers and things like that. It's hard, it's hard not to do that. So Shelly feels very undervalued. And um, in the end, Holling has to prove his love to Shelly um, by saying, I, I don't care about your mind. I want you for your body, which uh, somehow in this situation is the right thing to say, but that is what? How? I think that's like get the here? entire theme of the episode. Uh, <laughs> not intentionally the theme, but there is uh, of the entire episode or of this plot, the entire episode. Okay, so there's a lot of themes of accepting who you are and being comfortable in your own skin. But oh. the problem is that you shouldn't be accepting of these traits that you possess. Like Holling should not be accepting that he is a bigot, <laughs> and uh, not Holling, I'm sorry, Maurice. Maurice. Maurice should not be accepting that, and Holling should not be having this uh, terrible viewpoint. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's. It, 
it's, I don't think it's ever going to get easier for us to understand the love that they have for each other. It's mutual love though. Shelly loves hauling. He loves her. You know, it just shows that they can't, they're not intellectually compatible is like what the showrunners are trying to say to us. Yeah. And I think, feel like they're hinting on that a lot this season. Like, uh, and, uh, you know, it's played for laughs and that's fine and all, but I've, like I said, I, I feel like I remember this show handling it with grace, you know, and care. Um, but I don't feel like we're getting a lot of that. It's pretty much just sort of a joke and a strange, odd one at that. Well, let's talk about uh, some other elements of this storyline. Um, Shelly, she, she wants to hold a conversation with Holling the same way that he can with Anita because they're old friends. They have a history. And what does she do? She she goes to Ruth Ann's to check out a lot of books. She's trying to learn more about history. Especially from the 1950s. The 1950s, I guess, around the time that uh, Holling would have first met Anita. What does Ruth Ann offer her apart from like, I, I think later on Ruth Ann offers her some clothes and things like that. So we see <laughs> Shelly has a new costume, but um, what are some of the she, books here? I, I, wrote I think down. it's like the fall of like, or like trying to cause the fall of the Soviet Republic. <laughs> I think that's like one of the books. Yeah. Um, I think some sort of agriculture book. That's what I was, that's what I wrote down. I was trying to figure out where that came from. The, yeah. The department of agriculture's grain report for 1957. Why does she have that? Uh, I she just has an eclectic, uh, collection of books. Is, yeah. She just has sort of a hoard of, of everything. Yeah. I also like how she demonstrates her knowledge of these books by having the dinner scene with Holling and she brings up a bunch of like topics that were topical of the 1950s. This all culminates, yeah, to that, that dinner scene where Shelly is dressed like a typical housewife from the like 1950s. Like a Leave it to Beaver type of thing. Yeah. We have like the, the music playing. Uh, yeah, she, um, she references uh, Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, yeah. which is the second time that they mentioned that famous historic couple. Yeah, in, in this, this season, uh, uh, series. series. Yeah. yeah. She references the Salk vaccine, you know, the, uh, yeah. the, the, the polio vaccine, but it's funny because she's, um, she's trying to exist in the 1950s with this whole setting, the, what is it? The hot dog and cheese casserole with ketchup, mm -hmm. just the whole table dressing. But at the same you know time, what, just, uh, I'm yeah. sorry, I interrupted you. No, go ahead. I was going to say, you, you know what? The music might be different. The, topics of discussion might be different. The ideas are still the same though. Like Holling just wanted like a pretty wife. Yeah. That's probably what they wanted in 1950 and that's what they wanted in 1991. Like it's the yeah. same thing. And, and it's funny cause she's, she's trying to exist in this 1950s uh, landscape, but she still talks like her old self. For instance, the, she's, she refers to the Salk vaccine as being really bitchin', which is something that they wouldn't say in the 1950s. Yeah. <laughs> she she would have been fine in the 1950s, I'm thinking. Yeah, she seemed to have really done her, her homework because she, she's spouting off all these, uh, all these facts and these historical relevancies. But um, it, it ends poorly. Um, you know, she just wants to hold a conversation with, with Holling and somehow, yeah, I don't, I don't feel satisfied with the, we already touched on it, but the conclusion, which is just Holling wants her for her body. And that's upset. How do you, okay, let's, let's transport ourselves back to 1991. How are we supposed to come from this, uh, last ending line of that plot line? Like Honestly, how are we supposed to feel? The only thing I can get from it is humor. 
you know, because it doesn't really play as a satisfactory ending. Like, it's kind of a joke. It's, you know, because Shelley's ditziness is often played up for humor. Um, I don't know. What did you get for it? I guess the cynical side of me is saying, like, they're trying to say that uh, love comes in all forms of shapes and sizes. And some okay. people could love another for their mind and other people could love them just for their body. <laughs> and like, you shouldn't judge us for that because you know, the, the mind's going to want what the mind's going to want. But like, I, that's, that's the only yeah. explanation I have. I see what I see what you're getting at. Yeah. I mean like, yeah, we don't understand this, this uh, relationship that Shelly and Holling have, but to them it's real. So who are we to judge? But I don't know. No, I think we could judge a plenty. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. Um, Chris is holding the funeral ceremony and there's some music playing in the background and um, Chris cuts it off to give his his sermon, quote unquote. But before he does, or, or right after he does, he says, you know, that was uh, one of Rick's favorite songs. On the DVD, this music is, is Muzak. The original <laughs> broadcast, it's um, Is That All There Is by Peggy Lee. So it's pretty huh. upsetting that, you know, Rick's, they're, they're commenting on the music in this scene and they're just replacing the song that was originally broadcast. Even when they point directly at the music, listen to this, this was Rick's favorite song. They have the audacity to replace that for the DVD. I think if you're going to have the audacity to change it, you might as well change it to something outlandish, like Benny Hill theme song. <laughs> <laughs> or like yakety sax, like just like seriously, like, like that that's what they're doing. They're, ch- they're at the somber funeral scene and be like, "That was his favorite song, by the way." <laughs> the writers, you know, the sh- the people who put this show together intended that to be it, to be a to be the Peggy Lee song. But who, oh, what, what can you do? You know, uh, I thought it was you know like Chris makes like this beautiful sermon saying like you know like uh, we're all here. Chris Rick isn't here yet, but you know like funerals are for those who are still in the living. Yeah. And then they haul his body out finally when he gets here. I like how Ed is also the pallbearer. Yeah, I guess the pallbearer, <laughs> but also the announcer. He like kicks in the door. <laughs> He's always the delivery person, even for uh, corpses. And then they just haul Rick's body in, who is obviously the casket. Yeah, the coffin. How do they not remove the objects from him? <laughs> yeah, so we have this very misshapen coffin with uh, protrusions like rods and um, something that looks maybe like a barometer or something that looks like a tennis racket handle. Yeah, they could have easily saw, sawed off those pieces. Like they're just like kind of looks like a erector set built onto this um, this casket. Yeah, it looks like one of those, like it looks like one of those class projects you did as a child, you know, like build a... Uh, volcano like out of uh what, 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 just what is like that scrap material? pieces just like hobbying yeah like stuff from hobby lobby a chicken wire or something <laughs> yeah that's yeah. it yeah so it's kind of like like what his uh coffin looks like and i just don't know, understand how the townsfolks didn't just remove that <laughs> from him it's also funny that the notion of the curse maggie's curse is brought up at this funeral and uh <laughs> chris has to kind of pull the townsfolk he says, you know, you know, who, who doesn't believe in this curse? Like, come on, let's support Maggie. This isn't real. Come on, support her. And, and he has to like kind of like rally them because everyone's really nervous about this, uh, this curse. Yeah, or they want to take advantage of it of some kind because I think that one of the characters wants their husband to die. Yeah, later in the episode, um, someone runs into Maggie and invites Maggie to dinner and uh, with, with uh, her husband, you know, the, the three of them. And it's sort of suggesting Maggie, Maggie asks, are you suggesting I have an affair with your husband? <laughs> and uh, 
What did, what did she say? Are you suggesting that Bill and I have an affair? Well, the truth is, Maggie, I'll tell I can't stand to look at him. You want me to kill him? Just date him. Yeah, let nature take its course. Yeah, have we been introduced <laughs> to this character yet? No, this is, I don't think we've seen this actress before. This is uh, one of the townsfolk, I guess. She's doing a good job. Little bit part in this episode. Yeah, so we see the aftermath of that is that townsfolks are trying to take advantage of it or they're just trying to take advantage of Maggie. There's another. By, yeah, there's uh, another Rick's one. friend. Yeah, you want to tell about that scene? Yeah, apparently, uh, according to this person's mind, um, you can get first dibs on uh, another person, apparently, once their significant other dies. This guy, I guess, who was good friends with Rick, Gary is his name, mm-hmm. um, knocks on Maggie's door. She She's in mourning. She's created another diorama for lost boyfriend. And Gary, you know, offers her some oatmeal cookies. You know, he reminds, reminds her how good of a friend he was with Rick. And he suggests, you know, I think Rick would want me to have first shot at, at you, like at being your boyfriend. Uh, so she has to like kick him out. He's a kind of a goofy sort of like a um, weird looking guy. So yeah, I'm assuming he's a one-off character as well. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't recall him, but who knows? Yeah, uh, I, I got to feel that... Um, yeah, I, I didn't bring this up earlier, but I think that Maggie was in the right in reporting Rick. Yeah, no, no, we 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 talked about that a little. Yeah, because it could have Rick could have died, right? Yeah, it was like a responsibility. Like, uh, and then Joel's being kind of a um, uncharacteristically cruel toward Maggie because mm-hmm. he's saying like the reason that she did it was because she had some sort of um, Betrayal, complex toward oh. men. Yeah. yeah, she was like, well, you know, that's just the type of person you are. And he's, you know, trying to go over her judgment of being like, no, this is like my job. Like, I'm yeah. trying to protect people's she's lives doing out her, here. Yeah, she's doing what the test requires, like the administrator should do. I like her retort to Joel. She says he has more, <laughs> she says broccoli has more brain power than he does. <laughs> it's pretty good. So, but I like... I like that scene because it is done on purpose. Like, I think we as audience members are supposed to say like, whoa, that was like way over the line because he does apologize. Oh, in the, the in the end, Joel, Joel will. Yeah, right? Joel okay. apologizes and says like, well, we, what I did was like, that was uh, outlandish of me to say. But unfortunately, he also has to be the one to break the news to her that yeah. who <laughs> passed away. I like how, do you remember how he breaks the news? Yeah, with the joke. Yeah. Yeah, so Joel sits Maggie down and tries to explain to her a joke that he had heard once from a friend. <laughs> and the joke, a uh, really simple one, he just says that, you know, a friend goes on vacation and he asks another friend to look over his cat. And then he gets a call during the vacation saying, hey, uh, I'm really sorry, but your cat has died. And the person on vacation says, well, couldn't you have broken that in another way to me? Like a lot more you know, gentler, like, can you lead with like, uh, you know, like your cat was on the roof and then a tile slipped and then eventually, I'm sorry, it just led to your cat's death. <laughs> um, and the person takes note and says, okay. So then a month later, the cat owner or previous cat owner goes on <laughs> another vacation and then he gets a call from his friend and his friend says, Hey, I'm sorry. Uh, your mother, you know, she was on the roof and then the tile slipped and that's the punchline right yeah. there. Yeah, And he's and Maggie laughs at that. But then Joel says, um, well, Rick, Rick went up on the roof. Or something yeah. Like that. <laughs> nice little button to end it on. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, pretty frightening, pretty unfortunate. 
there again, we, we mentioned this, there, there are a lot of boyfriends that Maggie has lost five in total, but I believe there's some misrepresentations, uh, throughout this season. So we learn in this episode that, uh, from, from Chris, Chris's eulogy, actually, that Dave was one of, um, Maggie's boyfriends who fell asleep on the glacier, but in all his vanity, Maggie's father, Frank, lets us know that Bruce was the one who fell asleep on the glacier or the one who wrote Mountain of My Misgivings. Let's see if we can get this straight. Mm. According to this episode, the boyfriends that Maggie has lost are Dave, fell asleep on a glacier, Glenn, who took the wrong turn uh, in his Volvo. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Glenn uh, drove onto a missile test range oh, and was yeah. attacked. Um, Bruce, who was a victim of a fishing accident, and Harry, who died from potato salad. Harry somehow <laughs> died from potato salad. Chris was like, wait, 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 how did Harry die? <laughs> and it's just picnic. Oh, right, the potato salad. I don't, I don't know what happened. Maybe he was allergic to potato salad. That, that could be very serious, I, I guess. like a salmonella type of situation. Oh, wow. The way I read it. Yeah. Dang. But no, this is inconsistent with what we've learned from um, episode three of this season, Alice Vanity. Bruce should be the one who froze to death on the glacier. Not only that, but um, in that episode, Alice Vanity, we learn of three of three of the dead boyfriends being um, Bruce, Roy, and Harry. There is no Roy mentioned in, hmm. in Slow Dance in this episode. Uh, a bit of a doubt. Maybe one of them is the first name and the other one's the last name? Uh, maybe, but... Uh, yeah, that, that could be possible that they would refer to them because Maggie is constantly referred to as um, O'Connell, but it would have been Harry Roy or or Roy Harry is the person's name, if we yeah. go by that. <laughs> Real fast, have we even said the, the name of this episode? Slow Dance? This is this is episode oh, we seven. We just, we just been referring to it as the um, season finale, but the name of the episode is Slow Dance, which I guess we can get to. Let's discuss the title some more um, once we get to the end here. Mm-hmm. Before we get there, we're, we're back, you know, again, we're at the funeral. We're back at the uh, sort of the chapel area in Sicily. Always, I'm still looking out for Pew-leaning kid. I, wa- I want him to come back and make a reappearance. Oh, I forgot. I miss him from season one, but uh, I-, I didn't see him in this, um, in this episode, but I have something to offer, perhaps a substitution. Um, there is a girl who leans her head against the side of the pew. So we have a new... Pew-leaning oh. So different, different extra, same direction, same action. Uh, there's a girl who seems to be very bored. All right, let's keep a lookout for her for future scenes. Pew-leaning girl. Uh, wait, no. Let's talk Pew-leaning about Pew-leaning kid still. Uh, Pew-leaning kid, but I think that she should have her own distinct her own. title. Pew-leaning girl. So yeah, to get to the end here, I actually don't, I don't really recall if this is the last scene or just one of the scenes where Perhaps Joel is apologizing to uh, Maggie. I don't know if it's the same scene, actually. It's it's in the when it, n- not the apology part. But okay. Well, there's a, what's maybe you can help me figure out where this happens. But Maggie refers to Joel as Mister Wizard, which I you know almost flew under the radar, but I, I did go in and uh, do some research. Mister Wizard is um, the sort of personality name for Don Herbert who was known as the friendly neighborly scientist sort of like, think like Bill Nye before Bill Nye. Oh, what? Yeah. Yeah. He had his own TV show in the fifties called watch Mr. Wizard. Um, he's very active through the 1980s. Um, in fact, in the 1980s, he had a show on Nickelodeon called Mr. Wizard's world, uh, which ended, I think in 1990, but continued to, to rerun until 2000. 
Also, huh. in- interesting little fact: he was um, he was a guest on the first episode of Late Night with uh, David Letterman. Hey, so you know, very nice. Someone that we probably um, missed the boat on, but I guess very uh, pop culture icon. I guess um, yeah, she, honestly, she's relating. Yeah, honestly, I thought that Mr. Wizard was saying like a wizard, like the yeah. <laughs> magical spellcasting thing. Well, she's like I relating, didn't even know it had a deeper meaning. <laughs> yeah, she's like relating Joel to a man of science, perhaps, because um, especially in this very last scene, uh, I love Joel's proposal to Maggie uh, in this last scene. I would play the soundbite, but um, the the music beneath it is Etta James' uh, At Last, which is a beautiful song. And of course, we do not have the rights to play it. Oh yeah, we absolutely do not have the rights for that. <laughs> but uh, Joel... Um, Joel essentially says to Maggie and to the entire brick, I'm not afraid of you, O'Connell, referring to the curse. It's like, I'm not afraid of this. This is silly that we will go on believing this curse. He, he's in a way trying to cheer Maggie up and trying to stand by his guns, like as a man of science. Yeah, I like that part of the episode. And, you know, sadly, that might be the only part of the episode I actually really like. Oh, you're, you're not a, a big fan of uh, what else? I mean, there's the Ron and Eric storyline. But I guess it's kind of uh, overshadowed by Maurice's bigotry. Yeah, and I just don't like, even if it wasn't for that, I just don't like the way it resolves. Because I think in the last scene that we were just talking about, Joel gets up and dances with Maggie. And then everyone else starts Everyone joins in, in yeah. And including, I guess, Ron and Eric. But are you suggesting uh, Maurice's look when he sees that? Yeah, he's still like not understanding not of it. Not approving still in a way. Yeah, Um it's also kind of just as I, I get the reason why they wanted to end on that, but I, I, I feel like too many of Northern Exposure's endings have been like that. What do you mean? Just kind of like twenty or thirty seconds of just a shot of just mm. watching the townsfolk go by. Yeah, and I feel like just like how we were talking about how dreams kind of need to stop being the opening. I think that these types of endings. Yeah. Um, I would disagree. I, I really love this ending. Um, really? I mean, I, I thought your complaint was, um, just Maurice's, uh, disapproval, which, you know, I, I didn't like that, but, um, no, I think this is a solid way to end a, a season. Think of, uh, you know, another notable season two ending stranger things ends with, a with, a you know, a homecoming dance of sorts or something like that. This is nice. We get to see the whole town kind of converge and, you know, we see that Joel has faith in Maggie believes in her and, and, uh, the, the town approves of this and everyone is, is joining and dancing together. And even if Maurice disapproves it, I feel like the town is very ac- accepting of Ron and Eric hmm. to okay. gay men dancing together. I can, yeah, I can see your perspective on that. I, I think the way that I'm coming at it is that the way that season finales, usually the way I look at them is that they'll either end on like a cliffhanger or they'll end on some sort of game changer uh, mm, like yeah. that for it to go back to back on season one and season two to end in this way of being a resolution that could have just ended the whole series right then and there. I'm not a super duper big fan of because well, I see where you're coming from. Like uh, what happens next? It's not a cliffhanger. It's not a huge game changing thing. I would argue though, Rick's death is pretty monumental. I mean, we haven't seen Rick at all in this, well, in this season, if, but it's a, yeah, it's a if, game changer. If that was the case, I wish they would have led into that though, of like some kind being affiliated with Rick's death. Instead, the dancing is in some way related to Rick, but not really. It's just related to Maggie and Joel and their relationship. 
Well, let's look at this real fast because we we didn't really ask ourselves this after season, after um, episode five. Mm-hmm. What happens between Joel and Maggie after they kiss each other? In episode six, we don't get a lot of romance between Joel and Maggie. In fact, it's kind of all centered around uh, Nikolai. There's not a lot of Joel and Maggie plot in that episode, I would hmm. say. You know what? I think you're right. I think if we would have swapped out the order of the episodes from six to five and five to six, and then we led into this season finale, yeah. I would have understood the ending better. Because you're right. We never did talk about how they carried on with their lives after they kissed. And this this would have given... um, Huh. It's tricky. I like your I like your suggestion of kind of flipping those episodes. Um, but it is tricky because the way this episode starts is like a blunt reminder. Rick is alive. He's here. And so there's no future for, you know, Joel and Maggie, especially, you know, in, in spring break, she suggests, I've got Rick. You got to find your own uh, woman that you can be with. But by the end of this episode, it's a clean slate of sorts. Like, because Rick is out of the picture, I guess. Hmm. Um, what can we ex- expect from Joel and Maggie in season three? Um, I will say, I feel like a lot of that steam was lost after episode five because it sort of really hit a breaking point um, there, yeah. but but didn't really fulfill, uh, didn't do any follow-up really. Yeah, I think you're right. Now that I can re-examine it underneath those uh, lenses, I think that this is kind of a good finale ending with that in mind but oh yeah no i I won't discredit it it's pretty tame like i think it's good but i'm with you charles it's kind of a tame ending like it's not as exciting as it could be because some groundbreaking uh story changing things happened in this in this season for instance spring break you know and and it kind of uh lost uh lost momentum a little Mm-hmm. i would also argue that season one finale aurora borealis at least was very out of the box. Like it was very unusual. Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. as a season finale, I, uh, I liked it. I remember saying that I liked the episode. Right. Right. And I had the character of Bernard and everything. It was a new character. I think if we just swapped out a little of the plot lines and the episode orders, this one could have been a better finale, but otherwise, uh, yeah, I'm not a big fan of it. You know, honestly, I think the breaking of the fourth wall in episode six would have been a great way to end, to end the uh, season two. <laughs> yeah, that would have been pretty, pretty, uh, pretty extraordinary. No, I, I think uh, on the record now, uh, we'll, we'll talk more about this in our retrospective episode. We, we should do a whole retrospective of uh, season two for sure. But um, yeah, on the record now, this is a pretty tame way to end the the season. Not bad. It's a happy ending. But yeah, I, I do want to uh, quickly quote what Joel um, tells Maggie, this is uh-huh. again, he's when he's asking her to dance and he's trying to be the man of science uh, and, and perhaps, you know, believe in Maggie a little bit. He says, if you don't dance with me, O'Connell, you know what you're doing? You're turning your back on reason, on mankind's struggle to pull itself out of the mire of ignorance and superstition. You are saying yes to witch hunters and inquisitors. You're slamming the door on enlightenment and you... You're inviting back the dark ages. Now I'm not doing this for you, O'Connell. I'm doing this for civilization. And he like hands out his hand and asks her, pretty please, will you dance with me? I guess he's also made a big scene. And so he doesn't want to get rejected in front of all of the brick. <laughs> it's pretty forward. You know, it's a pretty forward ask. But um, in the context of, of them being, um, you know, lovers, quote unquote, but, but in the context of them being friends, it, it's, 
it's a nice touch. It's a nice ending. You know, he's like, come on, just dance with me. Don't, you know, Maggie obviously is dealing with the stress of, of losing someone she loved. Um, and also compounded on top of that is the anxiety of feeling this curse. And in, in a way, I think Joel is, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like he's doing his best to try to alleviate that because Joel doesn't believe it. He's a man of reason, you know? Yeah. And he's trying, it, to, trying to tell her, you don't have anything to be worried about. As your doctor, I can tell you there is no curse. Yeah. And he hides it, of course, underneath the veneer of being a doctor of, of his true <laughs> feelings for Maggie. But he really, yeah, he really does like her. Hopefully, I guess we'll see. Um, yeah, that's the end of season two. I think we've kind of spent a lot of time here in that, in that scene. Um, we'll definitely have a lot of time to reflect on this ending and this, this, this season as a whole, but were there any little last little points? Maybe you wanted to just one thing. Um, this is Maurice, uh, being, um, not liking when he was compared to having the same interests as, uh, Ron and Eric or people trying to trying to convince him to not be so upset about it. He says something to the effect of, he's like, you know, I'm a red-blooded American, you know, I'm a man, something like that. But he says, okay, except I've never, I've never thought about a man that way, except for this one uh, weird dream that I had when I was wrestling. Uh, what does he say? David something? Yeah, he's like, okay, I did have one, okay. Tell you the truth, I did have one unsettling dream where I was wrestling David Niven. That that's a apparently a, a famous uh, British actor. Um, I think he was um, <laughs> he was part of a, a, the Pink Panther movies, I guess, or series. But yeah, I just thought that was a funny little aside uh, that Maurice had. <laughs> you know, I never uh, speaking on that. That never even occurred to me that Maurice could be. Uh, have the sexual orientation of being uh, homosexual because even though it's stereotypically seen, I guess like, like liking cooking and antiquing and croquet and musicals. Uh, today it's I, not like, I mean, maybe it's stereotypical, but like, you know, right today, like if you like musicals, if you like cooking, that's not, that's not, um, you're not typed as gay because of that. Yeah, you're so, gay because you love, uh, the person you love, you know, it's not yeah, about, I, I, yeah, it just never <laughs> occurred to me that like you could even be seen in that way until this episode like highlighted them. I was like, Oh, I guess you could. Like, well, I mean, I connect the, dots. the general consensus of the nineties, I guess was those, those stereotypes. Yeah. Okay, so we're here with our guest for the season finale for season two. It's Addie. Yeah, our good friend Addie has come in sort of at the 11th hour and agreed to do his guest analysis of the episode. And unlike any other guest analysis that we've done before, we actually have Addie here with us in the same room. We're all in the same room. This is real. Yeah, not he's Skype, in the studio with us. <laughs> the studio. We promise, yeah. <laughs> it, yeah, this is pretty much our studio. Yeah, so, you know. Imagine, uh, you know, cushioned walls and these very high-tech microphones. Yeah, assistants that we pay with uh, actual monetary currency. <laughs> yeah. Wait, y'all are getting paid? <laughs> so, Adi, tell us about uh, your experience watching this show. Sure. Um, so this was actually my first time watching Northern Exposure. Y'all had talked about it, you know, right. previously. I kind of went in not knowing anything about the show. Uh, I know I talked to you guys before this. I didn't know when it was recorded. I didn't know uh, any of the characters. So it was a little funny when I was watching it. I actually thought that Rick was the main character 
Um, yeah, he's like in the very first scene yeah. <laughs> and seems to have sort of a struggle that you can relate with. Like exactly. he's a vulnerable character. Yeah. The, the odds are against him. Uh, yeah, he even looks, now that I think about it, he looks like a lead character. He's like uh, conventionally a handsome, attractive. Charming, yeah. yeah. He's talking to a female lead who's also attractive, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So like it just, I seem like those are the two main people there in the opening yeah. shot. Then so how he did goes, that pan like, out for you throughout? It was pretty funny, actually, because <laughs> he goes to the doctor, right? And I thought this was like a normal thing people do. You know, you go to the doctor. Mm-hmm. And I thought he was going to like go on afterwards. And then I guess I can spoil it. Like he dies. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and some like horrific death. Yeah. And people are like joking about it and like laughing about it. I was like, this is a weird show. <laughs> um, and then I thought maybe you guys were like pranking me. Like this was some like weird episode. <laughs> and then it became apparent as I was watching that Fleischman is probably the main character. That's my guess. Yeah, um, correct. And uh, I, it also seems like Maggie is probably also a pretty main character. We were talking about this uh, earlier today, Charles, how season two really has sort of that spine of Joel and Maggie, will they, won't they? We keep talking about that, but really like you could chart it out. The first episode, Joel um, becomes a single man. The last episode, Maggie becomes a single woman. And in the middle is kind of like when they kiss each other. And <laughs> so spoilers for Addie, who hasn't seen it. but <laughs> Yeah, you're, no, you're right. We were talking about that earlier. And I'm glad that you pointed that out. I actually didn't realize that. I didn't put two and two together where they're, they must have planned that out, like the writers of the show. They yeah, must have had an arc for the characters. I could imagine it was sort of outlined. And if they had a, write, a writer's room, you know, that's, that seems like an outline. Oh, okay. Uh, Addie, I think that... We, uh, we're all childhood friends. Uh, we know each other since uh, high yeah, school. we go back. And I can't remember, did Lee always bug you about the show? Yeah, so Lee actually <laughs> bugged me a lot about this show. I was obsessed. And we had a, uh, this is ir- not really relevant on exposure, <laughs> but we had a thing where Lee would tell me to do things and I would just say no categorically multiple times. Yeah. Or you would like do the opposite. Even if you like something, you would trash yes. it. <laughs> I, I, I would do that for like multiple music artists mm-hmm. and uh, shows. But yeah, so Lee, Lee definitely mentioned this. And we had another mutual friend. I think Jay's been on the show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jay also likes Northern Exposure, and you guys both would team up and tell me to watch I it. I think we're just like too big of a fanboy. Like we come on a little too hard, maybe. Yeah, it could have been it. Also, I was in high school. I don't really know why yeah. I was doing anything else. Doing. <laughs> um, but you never watched any of the episodes, though, right? It's like the first, yes, yeah. first time I've ever seen the show. Wow. Um, well, okay, so what else happens in this episode? What can we um, point out? I don't know if y'all have a way to do this, but I kind of noticed three kind of big storylines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one of them was the whole colorblind, colorblind mm-hmm. uh, Rick thing. Yeah. Um, another one was uh, Maurice's not so internal struggle um, about the gay couple that moves into the house. Yeah. Um, and his conversations with Chris about it. And then there was another, um, I thought, a very personally extremely odd. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing with Holling and Sh- Holling and Shelley. Yeah. What do you think about this Holling Shelley uh, coupling? I mean, so first of all, I thought it was a little odd, but you know, two people love each other and they're both into it. That's fine. Um, the thing that was very, very weird to me was at the end of the episode, Holling makes this sort of impassioned speech to Shelley. Um, oh wow! I totally forgot how this. It's been a while since I've seen the episode, but it's so. It was, it's the worst. Uh, it's terrible. I've seen this clip actually used in advertising for the show. Wait, what? Yeah, because it, it was on the VHS that I have of uh, Spring Break. That's the clip they showed? I mean, they show multiple clips. It's like a, um, a montage, but that's oh. one of the sound bites they use. And I'm like, this is terrible. It's oh really Lord. bad. He basically says, like, I don't care about your mind. All I care about I is want your, your body. body. That's your body. all he says. And then she responds by being, like, so happy that yeah. she goes and hugs him. And I remember being, like, 
what is happening right now. Yeah, so this show, we, we talk about a lot on, on our podcast, you know, does the show age well? I have to only guess that at the time of the show, that was meant to be like a joke. Still, today, that's not a very funny joke. Not really. That's pretty no. <laughs> upsetting. Yeah. Um, and we always, uh, we hear it from our guests and we talk about it often, Charles and I. Um, it's like, are we comfortable with this? Yes, they're a mutual, mutually, they love each other. Sure, I felt, that I was trying you know. to reason with it as well and I was like, she's down, he's down. Yeah. Like, they're clearly both adults. I think she's, I don't know yeah. how old she is. But Wait, how old do you think she is? She does not act very old. Um, and he, at one point he comments by saying that he is 40 years older than her. Yeah. Well, so he's, uh, he's 64. Yeah. So, I mean, that makes sense. She's 24. So, like, she's capable of making her own decisions. Yeah. Just weird. And there's, I forgot, there's another thing I was going to mention about it, actually. Um, so, she's actually um, 18 or 19. At yeah, the time. she's not actually. Well, not, I mean, not the, the actress, actress but the character. The character. No, 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 the character. Okay. In the show, 18 or 19. Very weird. Yeah. Um, and there's another thing that actually, I remembered whenever you're, you're saying maybe they were joking. I actually think they weren't joking because <laughs> Holling actually says right before, he says, um, he's referring to um, whenever he's talking to Anita. And Shelley had complained earlier how Holling and Anita were able to talk so much. And Holling, when he's trying to convince Shelley that he loves her, he says, there's like more to a relationship than just talking. You have to do something after you're done talking. Um, and he's basically, because his whole reasoning for him trying to get Shelly to like him again is that there's this really intense physical attraction between the two. Mm -hmm. And he's basically saying that's what really matters. And that's, that's like the for only him, thing. That's what love is. Exactly. Um, so, you know, in that way too, she, if that's the same thing for her, clearly it's not. It's their love language. That's his love language. <laughs> that's, that's his love language. Um, and I don't know. I just yeah. thought that whole yeah. thing was very off-putting. It's, it's a little unbalanced maybe. Yeah, for I sure. So. I mean, we see that because... Shelly is like trying to get in there. She wants to have a conversation like Holling can have with Anita. Yeah. And that's not what Holling's there for. So yeah, that's kind of unbalanced in the favor of uh, the male partner. It's Definitely. just a little yeah. messed up. We've had guests before that thought that she was his daughter. Yeah. And then, it, yeah, it turned real south really quickly. Yeah. Once they saw what happened later in the yeah, episode. Anita says that in the episode. Yeah. She yeah, she does. Yeah. She says, is this your daughter? And then there's like this weird, awkward moment. So again, I think we've said this a lot of times. I think the only defense really is like, and it's not even a great defense, but this show is like known for sort of like, you know, trying new things. And it is very progressive in a lot of ways. I think Ron and Eric, I don't know if we mentioned this, is like kind of one of the first representations of a gay couple, you know, in, in a sitcom like this maybe. Or even if it's not the first, it's like a very positive representation. So just by that token, maybe they were trying. And I think their efforts were not for the best, but I think they were trying to like, maybe we can make a... Uh, we can tackle a relationship between a very older person and a very young person and, and try that with grace, but I think it doesn't age super well. Sure, and only one thing I would add to, I wasn't really watching TV then, so yeah. I think it is important to view this in the context of other shows that were airing at the time. Maybe mm -hmm. this was progressive for that time. I don't. Yeah. I have no idea. I feel like they did pretty, a pretty well representation, at least for... Uh, is it Ron and Eric? That's the couple that yeah. tries to buy a mm -hmm. house from Maurice. Yeah, I thought that they were represented pretty well. And uh, I mean, at, at the very least, you weren't throwing slurs at them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Maurice was. It yeah. It could have been worse, but even when Maurice is sort of a bigot, like we see that he's, the show presents him as like being wrong. Yes. Right. Like we yeah. understand. That's, that is very true. That is very, very true. Um, and so it's something that he has to sort of overcome. They present him, they present, uh, present him in a way being wrong, but in a very interesting 90s way. Uh -huh. um, they do it with this sort of 
if you do believe what Maurice like does believe, we're not going to hate on you because, oh. for example, mm-hmm. there's plenty of times when Chris could have corrected Maurice, yeah, but he he doesn't. Like now, yeah, a character would, would step say out of their way like, like, "Hey, that's wrong. You yeah. shouldn't say that." Um, Chris just says, "Well, hey, if you believe, you know this. So let me tell you a different way yeah. about how you could look at it." Where like you really, yeah, now there's no reason. There's no defensible. Yeah, you know, Chris is only like way of like getting through to Maurice's we mentioned it on the podcast earlier um, like using sort of that military background yes, exactly. yeah. um, which is like I guess smart because like he knows how to talk to Maurice but right. yeah it's still like it's not really the best uh, strategy but it seems to work I yeah guess. it did work in the end too yeah overall um, any other notes like um, how does this feel for like a season finale because we kind of the season finale yeah this is the oh, last yeah, episode yeah. of season two it's, it's a short it's a short season okay yeah. Um, was Rick in the whole Oh, thing? we didn't even mention that. Yeah. Rick is in the first episode okay. for like less season, than a second. Yeah, first like, episode of season two. He's literally seen for a second and then like he walks off screen. Okay. And then um, he hasn't been here since this episode. Okay. He's in season one a lot. That's kind of funny. Yeah, it's, it's really <laughs> funny because we're talking about how he appears to be sort of a protagonist in the yeah. opening. There are also scene. some weird moments... I don't know. I'll, I'll mm-hmm. be honest. Go for it. I yeah. didn't really enjoy this episode no. very much. Yeah. This is our um, first guest that like has been very honest about his opinion of the show. Yeah, I wonder, has there been any, any other guest that has... Uh, said no, they, all of them have always said, like, oh, I'd watch more of this show. I think, like, yeah. by our metric, our worst episode, um, the guest has a very humorous uh, analysis. Oh, Will, yeah. yeah, you're right. So, like, I guess... If we would ins- expect him not to like it, we didn't really hear that because he was kind of it was making just, jokes. It was strange. It was there was a couple times where I was like, that was just a weird turn for the show to take. Like mm-hmm. whenever Rick was in the woods and he got hit by the satellite, like that was just kind of weird. Then it merged together yeah. with him. That was really weird. <laughs> and then they bring in that like they kind of make a humor. Very like dark. Take on, yeah, exactly. And whenever like everyone starts laughing at the funeral, I was like, what is whoa, happening right now? Yeah. It was a very weird. Like I wasn't expecting that from. Mm-hmm. The show, based on what it had presented, it's kind to of me a sitcomy comedy thing. Uh, I know this is the only episode you've seen, but it does tend towards the dramatic too. Um, but this is very dark comedy, which we haven't really seen in this show before. But I will say, um, I think Bruno and Lizzie, maybe even more of our guests, a lot of the guests this season have commented how strange the show is. So I think maybe they're trying, at least in the second season, they're trying to get really weird with it. Yeah, I was going to say, it doesn't get less strange than this. Yeah. So if you, if you can't handle this, you're not going <laughs> yeah, to like don't the rest. Like <laughs> I mean, I, I like, like you know, I mean, yeah. you guys know me, but I like weird fiction. I like yeah. uh, horror things with strange elements. But mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of times... And this is just my perspective on one episode of the show. Yeah. The strangeness or weirdness has a purpose. Yeah, this felt this kind of felt just, just very like weird. why was the, exactly like mm-hmm. weirdness for being weird, but maybe I don't know, maybe that's an appeal to the show for why people like it. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I will say we haven't done our our ranking yet. That'll be in the next episode, the retrospective. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, there there's certainly very good episodes in season 2. This one doesn't rank as high for me. Yeah, I don't know if we prefaced this, but we haven't seen this episode in a while. Yeah, uh, when we recorded the podcast, it was pretty fresh in our mind, but it's been a while. Uh, we found our guest, Adi. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been a long time since we've seen it, but go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, um, I don't know if I said this during the recording, but I didn't really like this episode as well. Yeah, I, I, I wonder if episode. you... No, I, I, think I, I think I do remember we, we were talking about um, 
And I guess people who are listening to this now are like, yes, we've heard this already. Uh, I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, guests. We do this all the time. Yeah. yeah um, um, listeners. But no, I, th- I, I could be wrong, but I think we talked about how it's kind of an underwhelming end of a season. Yeah, especially as a season finale. Yeah. I mean, even our guest, Addy, was surprised that it was even a season finale yeah. at all. Maybe that's partly because it was ordered as like a half is like it's half of a season, like it's you know in the half slot. Well, it's know. even less than half. It's True. one third of a season. Yeah. There was a moment that did kind of feel like a season finale. Mm-hmm. Uh, by this point, I'd realized Flashman's probably the main character. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever he makes that big dramatic speech at the end, yeah, and then yeah. asks Maggie to dance, and everyone in the town is together. Yeah, that felt kind of finale-like, unifying. but it still wasn't like a real yeah. gripping season finale. It's not super strong compared to first season, which you know we really liked. I think. But, yeah, Aurora, which still Aurora doesn't else? feel like a. Sh- super, super strong ending. Mm-hmm. And as we know, it actually was slated for episode four, but Ouroboros was released as episode eight. Right, they rearranged the episodes, mm-hmm. and I would say that's a much better season finale than yeah. this one. But overall, Addy, would you say that this is even a good television show for you? Ooh. I mean... I think he already answered. He was yeah. like, not really into this show. <laughs> I, I wouldn't watch more of it, no. But I don't think... Here, no, here's no. the thing. I don't like saying if any art thing is good or bad. Like, mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. didn't like it that much. Yeah. I'm not, a, like, a qualified to say if a show is good or bad, right? Like, I'm not a, a TV critic. Yeah, we don't want to put all yeah. the weight on Eddie. Yeah. Like, he just watched one episode. But yeah, also true. true. Yeah. I've only watched one episode. Maybe if I watched... So you also... You guys said you didn't really even like this episode that yeah. much. Maybe I've if I were to watch, with, like, uh, a better episode, maybe I would like it. Yeah, I've come to terms with, like, a negative review of this episode because... I, you know, I like the episode. I and love season two. Just but. to be fair, mm-hmm. too, like we all watch a lot of the same TV shows. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty sure that I could like it if I were exposed to it in the proper way. Yeah, like if we like it, uh, it's likely that Adi would like it. Something that yeah. Adi likes. Like all of us share some of the, like, our favorite TV shows we all kind of share yeah. for a lot of them. So, mm-hmm. and you guys seem to like the show enough yeah. to make a podcast out of it. Well, because you're saying that, maybe we'll have to like try to drag you into another episode <laughs> in the future. Well, we I, have plenty, plenty left. Yeah, the season three has uh, 23 episodes. <laughs> but I like that you don't like this episode though, because yeah, most of our guests, exactly, they don't say that. So you're you're the first one to say it. And I, I really want to dig into that, to understand, and to be able to express that opinion to our listeners that someone actually just legitimately didn't like it. Yeah, and it inspires more conversation, and we kind of really get to think deeply about things. We don't necessarily write it off as like, this is great. I love the show, but it's like, oh, this is interesting. Like this could be different or, and almost understanding what is, um, what might be the problems of an episode kind of highlight, uh, the elements of the show that are really good. It's like, oh wow, that, that really works. Mm-hmm. So this is like kind of the thing that I love about the show. The other stuff, uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah. What type of doctor is Joel? Uh, I honestly don't know. General? What, general? what type? How big of- is the town? Pretty small. Uh, wait, population 839? Yes. Wait, 837? Something. Yeah. 800s. He's probably like internal medicine, family medicine, like a general kind that of That sounds right. I would, I would buy that. He makes a lot of other, he makes jokes in another episode about like uh, different schools of medicine. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I, so we can understand that he's not, what does he say, like neurologist or like, Oh, he says he makes a crack at different schools. Hopefully we can insert that clip back in and you can just edit what I'm saying right now. <laughs> would you tell me why I care? I mean, someday Elaine and I are going to be married with three spoiled kids in private school. The only chief I'll be socializing with will be the chief of obstetrics, maybe neurology, but no, those, those guys are lunatics. All right, well, that does it for season two, episode seven, Slow Dance. We're going to be doing our retrospective next week. 
So come back and we'll kind of discuss our favorite episodes, um, sort of like the superlatives, like the Oscars of Northern Exposure. Like, what, what was your favorite this or that? Yeah, um, like best guest star, um, favorite moments in a television show. Yeah, we'll figure something out. But Charles, thanks for hosting with me. Adi, thanks for joining us thanks here. Thanks for having me. All in the same room in this pristine uh, recording studio. This is a beautiful studio. <laughs> <y'all>. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Charles, I'll see you next week. All right, see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Addy for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And of course, thank you for listening. <laughs>